Well, our scripture reading today is the Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, which we are reading for the weeks of Advent. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And the amazing word of the Lord. All right, we want to invite Bernard to come on up and teach us. Well, good morning. So we've been hearing that uh, today is the third Sunday of Advent. And so uh, this morning, Mary lit uh, the third candle. Um, it's a different color, as Sharon pointed out, not the purple of the other three candles, but joy, uh, but pink, which is the liturgical color of joy. And uh, this is the uh, earliest of the four candles to have a designated meaning, uh, the earliest of the Sundays to have a designated meaning, that of joy, and this is, goes back uh, to the ninth century. Uh, the other designations of hope, peace and love are much more recent. Now because the theme is joy, uh, this has for a thousand years been called Gaudete Sunday. Gaudete is uh, the Latin plural imperative of rejoice. And some of you may be familiar with that word Gaudete from the, uh, the ancient Latin carol. Uh, Gaudete, Gaudete, Christus est natus ex Maria Virgine, Gaudete. Rejoice, rejoice, Christ is born of the Virgin Mary. Rejoice. But it's too early to sing that today uh, because liturgically Christ is not yet born. We're not yet at Christmas. Instead, we're in the season of Advent. Now, I know some of you have been wondering why are we not yet singing more Christmas carols? Well, those are coming, but uh, we've sung a couple today. Uh, but we're not at Christmas yet. We're in Advent, this season of waiting. And so we've been singing Advent carols, carols that are full of longing. So last week we sang, 
O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. But even these Advent carols have within them an element of joy, of the joy of anticipation. And so the refrain of that carol, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Or this morning we sang, come thou long expected Jesus. In the last line of that first verse, a magnificent verse by Charles Wesley, um, claims Jesus as the joy of every longing heart. Joy and longing. Those are uncomfortable together. They don't really mix, they're like oil and water. It's hard to have joy and longing simultaneously. It's hard when you were longing to have any joy. And then when uh, joy comes, the longing gets brushed away. It is fulfilled. But Advent really is a time of holding those two in tension, seeking to live in that place of both longing and joy. And uh, this is the place where the prophet Isaiah was, living in that space of longing and joy. And uh, the Lord sent him to his people at a time of crisis. And uh, Sean briefly covered the historical background a couple of weeks ago, but I want to linger in that space in which Isaiah found himself back in the uh, late eighth century, the space of longing uh, and joy. Now in 745 BC, a new king came to the throne of Assyria, uh, Tiglath-Pileser III, uh, whom Sean called Tiggy, and he set out on an aggressive policy of expansionism to turn the kingdom of Assyria into the first massive empire of the ancient Near East. And uh, the other nations looked at uh, his armies and were terrified, and uh, the kings of Aram, that is Syria, and Israel, uh, who traditionally had been enemies, they now made an alliance together and they marched up against Jerusalem. And their plan was to uh, depose King Ahaz of Judah and put in their own puppet king who would join their alliance in resisting this Assyrian expansion. And uh, we read, uh, when they came up against Jerusalem, Ahaz and uh, the people of Judah trembled in fear like the trees of the forest shaking in the wind. And we read about this at the beginning of Isaiah chapter seven. And it was into this crisis that the Lord sent Isaiah, his prophet, to deliver a message to King Ahaz. And Isaiah was to meet Ahaz at a very specific place near where the people did their laundry. Uh, outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And he was to deliver this message. Be careful, be quiet, don't be afraid, and don't be faint-hearted because of these two kings. So long before keep calm and carry on became a familiar British slogan, that's essentially what the Lord says to Ahaz. Keep calm and carry on. And then Isaiah said, uh, these two kings are just two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Yes, there's much smoke, but there's, not much, there's no longer any fire underneath that smoke. These two kings are already fizzling out. Their plan will not succeed. And then Isaiah challenges Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, you'll not be firm at all. So the message is, keep calm and carry on believing in the Lord and in his word. Don't be afraid of what you see with your eyes. 
the invading armies at the gate. Instead, trust what you hear with your ears, the Lord's promise. And to bolster his confidence, the Lord offered Ahaz a sign. But King Ahaz declined. But the Lord went ahead and gave him a sign anyway. And so Isaiah pointed out to one of the women doing the laundry, uh, washing clothes, and said, look, a young woman, she's pregnant and is about to birth her son. And to the woman he said, you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. A visible sign of God's presence with his people in the midst of their fear-inducing circumstances. Those circumstances would eventually change, but in the meanwhile, God would be with his people. This baby boy will grow up and learn how to make wise decisions, how to reject the evil and choose the good. But before he reaches that point, the land of the two kings that you fear, O Ahaz, will be devastated. The crisis will be over in just a few years. So keep calm and carry on trusting the Lord, trusting in God's word. But did Ahaz hear the word of the Lord? Did he believe? No, his eyes were blind, his ears were deaf, and his heart was dull. Just as the Lord had told Isaiah about this people in the previous chapter, chapter six. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. They had ears, but they couldn't hear. They had eyes, but they couldn't see. Now back in the language of Genesis 2, the Lord formed the first human out of clay, just like a potter making a little statue, into which God breathed the breath of life so he became a living being. He was a human with eyes to see and ears to hear. The Lord planted a garden full of trees, pleasant to the sight, and gave him a commandment to hear, to heed, pertaining to those trees. But quickly the man and the woman misused their eyes and their ears. The woman saw that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, which was correct. But she also saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise and she failed to hear, to heed the command of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. She gave to the man and he ate and then the Lord blamed Adam because you listened to the voice of your wife. And ever since, humans have struggled to see rightly and to hear rightly. This was true of King Ahaz. He failed to hear the word of the Lord calling him to keep calm and believe. He failed to see the sign that the Lord gave him. He saw only his predicament. He saw only the hostile armies at the gate. And so he was unable to hear God's promise this crisis will soon be over, and in the meantime, Emmanuel, God with us. He couldn't wait a few years. The crisis was now. Because the crisis was present, that's all that he saw, he had no joy. He looked, and he saw, and he was terrified, shaking like a leaf. Now, in 2 Kings 16, we read what Ahaz did. He looked a bit further, and he saw mighty Assyria on the horizon. And so he sent messengers to the king of Assyria with a simple message, help. 
And he took all the silver and the gold from the temple and the palace in Jerusalem and he sent that along as a present. Well, it worked. The king of Assyria listened to Ahaz and he attacked Damascus and defeated the king of Ass uh, and killed the king of Syria of Aram. And then Ahaz hurried off to Damascus to meet the great king. Oh, how much joy he had. The great king of the mighty empire had heard his voice. And Ahaz saw something else that, brought, that increased his joy. He saw the altar there in Damascus. And he was so impressed that he sent an exact model of it back to Jerusalem with instructions to make a replica and put it in the temple of the Lord. When Ahaz returned to Jerusalem, he made various offerings on this new altar. He was a happy man, a happy king. So that's the status of the king of Judah. His ears have refused to hear the word of the Lord. His eyes have refused to see the sign that the Lord has given through Isaiah. But the king of Assyria, of mighty Assyria, has listened to his voice, and Ahaz's eyes have been wowed by what he saw in Damascus. Everything is upside down in Jerusalem. There's a crisis at the very top with the king. The crisis is not the enemy at the gate. It's the king himself. Well, what about Isaiah? Well, his ears are working. He has faithfully heard and delivered the word of the Lord, and his eyes are working to see the signs that the Lord has given him. Because the Lord gives him two signs. And both of them are sons with significant names. The first is She'ar Yashuv. We read of him in chapter 7, verse 3. She'ar Yashuv means a remnant shall return. Then at the beginning of chapter 8, we told of the other son with the wonderful name Mahal Shalal Hashbaz, which means plunder hurries, loot rushes. So Assyria will swiftly plunder Damascus and loot Samaria, but a remnant of Israel shall return. Now, when that happened, Jerusalem rejoiced over the defeat of their near enemies. But the Lord warns that this same Assyria will sweep on into Judah. And Isaiah understands Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts. So we've seen the significance of the names of his two sons. His own name is significant. Isaiah, the Lord saves. So he says these names are signs and symbols, or as the Net Bible put it, they're reminders and object lessons. Because Isaiah's eyes are working properly to be able to see these signs and his ears are working properly to hear the Lord's word, he can say, chapter 8, verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. I will wait and I will hope. This is the theme of Advent. And Isaiah was able to live in that tension waiting and hoping, longing and joy. King Ahaz was not able to live there. So are we able to live in this space? Can we say, I will wait for the Lord and I will hope in him? 
Well, Isaiah could hope in the Lord that there would be salvation and that there would be a true king, one quite unlike King Ahaz, one whose eyes and ears and heart worked. And it is in this confident hope that Isaiah had that we come to our text, chapter nine, verses one through seven. And this contrasts the former time of humiliation and the latter time of glory. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light there in verse two. And then we've got the text printed on the little uh, worship sheet that you picked up as you came in. You can look at that in verse three, where we get the Lord will bring joy, mentioned five times there. You have multiplied the nation, or I think better, you have multiplied exaltation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as people exult when dividing plunder. Joy is coming. And then the expectation of a true king. Verse six, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A child has been born to us, a son given to us, a Davidic king who will fulfill all the promise of that role, all the purpose intended in God's covenant with David. This king will rule with justice and righteousness, verse seven, the task expected of every king. He will introduce un unending shalom, comprehensive well-being and flourishing for all people. Now in the context of Isaiah, this would have been seen as fulfilled in Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, who was probably about 10 years old at this point. He would become king in about 15 years time. And the first half of Isaiah ends with a lengthy account of Hezekiah. He behaved very differently than his father, Ahaz. It was during his reign 30 years later that the Assyrian king Sennacherib finally did invade Judah and besiege Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, in that crisis, he sought out the prophet Isaiah. And he went into the temple and he prayed to the Lord in these words that we have in chapter 39, verses 17 and 20. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. He was able to live in the tension of that moment because he sought the Lord. So Hezekiah was a good king who seemed to fulfill some of the expectation of this verse here in chapter nine. One of the best kings Jerusalem ever had, but he eventually died. And was the promise then dead? Well, those who had eyes to see and ears to hear continued to wait for the Lord and hope in him, just like Isaiah. And many centuries later, Luke introduces some of these people. Simeon, who is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna, who is among those waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Joseph of Arimathea, who is looking for, actually the same word, for the kingdom of God. And all three were looking forward in expectant hope that God would fulfill what he had promised. This is what Advent season is about. This expectation that God will fulfill what he has said. Now the disciples thought that these hopes were about to be fulfilled in Jesus, but then he was crucified and their hopes were shattered. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus said to the stranger who came alongside them, 
We had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But the Jewish leaders had handed him over to be crucified. This was all so unexpected. And then more unexpected things happened in the next 50 days. The resurrection of Jesus, his ascension, the gift of the Spirit. And the believers sought to make sense of it all. And on that first Pentecost, when the Spirit came upon them, Peter was empowered to give his first sermon, and he started by saying, this is that. This that has just happened, the gift of the Spirit, is that which was said by the prophet Joel. And the apostles came to realize that the whole life of Jesus, his birth, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, and pouring out of the Spirit was according to the scriptures, was in fulfillment of what God said of old. And so they looked back on their scriptures, Israel's scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, with new eyes to see and new ears to hear. And one of the places they looked at the most was Isaiah. And they realized that Israel's problem was much greater than they thought, and that God's salvation was also much greater. And so they read Isaiah 7:14, which was fulfilled in Isaiah's day, and they realized it had been fulfilled in a much greater way in Jesus. A virgin had conceived and bore a son, a son of David. And this really was Emmanuel, God with us. Not just a child who was a sign of God's presence with his people in their trouble, but God himself present on earth with his people as Jesus. And they read Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, of light coming to those in darkness, and realized this is what Jesus was doing as he went into Galilee, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And they read Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 10, about a new shoot from the root of Jesse, and realized Jesus was the shoot, that he was the root of Jesse, the root of David. So it's a surprise then that the disciples did not use Isaiah 9, verse six, in their making sense of Jesus. But many subsequent generations of Christians have done so, especially since Handel used this verse in the Messiah. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and so on. Now in this Advent series, we're looking at the names that are given to this son in that verse. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And today we come to the third, Everlasting Father. Now these words had meaning in their day. The king was to be a father to his people. He was their leader, the one with authority over them. But it was a caring leadership, one that ensured the flourishing of the whole family. The king was the connection point between God and his people, between heaven and earth. The king was to rule over the people as God's representative. God describes Israel as his son whom he redeemed and brought out of Egypt. God was father to Israel and that fatherly care was to be exercised through the earthly king. The Lord God cares for the fatherless and the widow and the stranger. He cares about justice and righteousness. And so the king was to care for the fatherless and the widow and the stranger. He was to rule with justice and righteousness so as to ensure the flourishing of all the people, great and small. 
how Judah longed for a king who would be such a father to the people, not just for a short time, but in perpetuity. A father to the people who would fulfill that intent of chapter nine, verse seven. Now this vision of the king as father was not unique to Israel. The Roman Senate conferred the title pater patriae, father of the fatherland, uh, upon uh, Julius Caesar and upon Augustus, among some others. But under their rule, there were many, many people who did not flourish under their so-called fatherly care. And then more recently, Mustafa Kemal uh, established the modern Republic of Turkey in 1923, and 11 years later, he was given the honorific title Ataturk, father of the Turks. So there's this vision of the king being a father figure, the leader being this father figure. Now Jesus showed loving care for those at the bottom of society, for the lepers, for the widows, for the poor and the oppressed. He exhibited God's loving care for them. And here too, Jesus was the connection point between God and his people, between heaven and earth. Indeed, he was God among his people. But Jesus never claimed the title of father. Instead, he always addressed God as father. And God took great pleasure in his son. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now I recognize that for many people, father is not a positive image. You did not hear your father say, with you, I am well pleased. Your father did not show you loving care. And so this has colored your view of God as father. You see disapproval or anger on his faith rather than gladness and joy. The reward of the beatific vision of seeing the face of God fills you with horror, not with joy. Now many earthly fathers are simply unable to be loving, caring fathers. But God is. Now my own mother grew up without a father, essentially. At the age of five, she went to live with her grandmother. And I never heard her talk of her mother, and rarely of her father, but she talked a lot of her granny. And whenever she prayed, she began, our loving heavenly father. And this helped help shape how I think of God. So God as father for me is a very, very positive image. And secure in our participation in Christ, God's beloved, we can know God as the father who deeply loves us also. Jesus is also our elder brother. He became like us, his brothers and sisters, as we read in Hebrews chapter two. He has gone before us as our elder brother into the presence of the father. And he continues to be the connection point between God and his people, the father and his family, heaven and earth. Except he is one of us in God's presence, a human being there before the very face of God. He is there on our behalf because when we are in Christ, we are adopted as sons and daughters also, brothers and sisters together in God's household under this loving Heavenly Father. Now, we are not at the end of the story. 
We look back and we remember Christ's first advent at this season, but we also anticipate a second advent. This same Jesus will come again as the returning king. And we continue to live in these in-between times between promise and fulfillment. Much has already been fulfilled, but not all. We continue to wait and to hope. We wait expectantly for God to complete what he has begun. Jesus will, re will return as King of kings and Lord of lords, and our joy will be complete. Meanwhile, our joy is not yet complete. In fact, today we may feel no joy at all, despite it being Rejoicing Sunday. We may feel that we ought to be joyful all the time, that we ought always to be able to say, God is good all the time. And this can produce toxic positivity, the inability to admit that we hurt. God is good all the time, but we do not always experience that good all the time. We suffer and we hurt and we grieve and we sorrow and we feel pain, physical, emotional, psychological. And it is all right to lament in this in-between time. It's all right to long for relief. This may or may not be forthcoming in this in-between time. And sometimes our only comfort may be the knowledge that God sees us and that God is with us in the midst of our pain through his spirit, the comforter. Just as what God wanted Ahaz to know was Emmanuel, that God was present with him in the midst of his crisis. And he did not have the ears to hear and the eyes to see the sign. Now as we live in this period of waiting and hope, we have signs and symbols. We have reminders and object lessons. Isaiah and his two sons were signs and symbols. Ours are baptism and communion. Baptism is a sign that we participate in Christ's death and resurrection. We have given him our allegiance and we now belong to him. And through him we belong to God, not just as his creatures, but as his redeemed people. We are his sons and daughters through Christ. We are part of his family. He is our loving Heavenly Father. And then communion is an ongoing sign of our participation in Christ, our fellowship with one another, and our reconciliation to the Father who loves us. And by these signs, we remember who we are and whose we are. And paying attention to the story of Jesus also helps us remember. And at Advent, we remember the longing for God to come to save his people. And we anticipate the second advent when he will come again to complete salvation. And we cultivate this longing for Jesus so that what we are dazzled by on earth is not the glittery shining things, the altar in Damascus, but God's grace in this child that is born to us, the son that is given to us. Our eyes can so easily be distracted, can be dazzled by the wrong things, 
We can be like Ahaz, wowed by what we see. And our ears can so easily listen to the wrong voices. We can be just like Ahaz. But at this advent, maybe instead be like Isaiah. I will wait for the Lord and I will hope in him. And then we'll be able to say the words that uh, were our call to worship from Isaiah chapter 12, which ends this unit, this block of chapters of Isaiah. With joy you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. You will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Shout and sing for joy. Meanwhile, we wait for the Lord and we hope in him. So let's close. I invite the uh, band to come back up. And we're going to close by singing again about Jesus, the one who is long expected, but the one who is joy of every longing heart. So on this rejoicing Sunday in the midst of Advent, may this Jesus be our joy of our longing hearts. Amen. O oh God, you make us glad with the yearly remembrance of the birth of your only Son, Jesus Christ. Grant that as we joyfully receive him for our Redeemer, so we may with sure confidence behold him when he shall come again. And now may he who by his incarnation gathered into one things earthly and heavenly, grant us all a spirit of joy and peace as we anticipate and celebrate the birth of Jesus. And may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest upon us now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.